the root problem when it comes to binging is some form of restriction. Again, whether it's caloric restriction, food group restriction, just certain food restriction. And when you remove that restriction, binging tends to be resolved like quite naturally, right? So in the example of your client who clearly had a lot of emotional attachments to gluten and dairy, even though it was potentially causing that physical discomfort, Maybe for him, he had all this fear and you know limiting belief and who knows what around giving up those foods and, and maybe has experienced that when I restrict those foods, I actually tend to overeat them more. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor, and movement expert as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Claire Siegel of Nutritional Freedom Foundations, welcome to Muscle Medicine Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So we just met like maybe a week ago, two weeks ago at an event, and it was super fun. And right when I met you, I was like, this girl's like, been living like parallel universe lives, <laughs> <laughs> like immediate connection. So I'm excited to have you on. So give us like a little snippet of your background. Sure. So I'm a registered dietitian by trade and about almost a year and a half ago launched Nutritional Freedom, which is my nutrition and mindset coaching business. And in that time we've grown, we've worked with over 150 women at this point. We've got a, a small Ooh. team of amazing women as well. And the reason I got into this is because I grew up as a kid, I was chubby and it was such a big part of my life. I was on Weight Watchers by the time I was 13 or younger and basically spent the next decade dieting, fighting my body, trying to control and change my body with food. And in some ways that's what led me to become a dietitian. And I saw all the ways in which my self-worth was so wrapped up in my size. And I tried again to exert all this control without much success, you know, kind of just, just vacillating within a really small weight window, no matter how hard I was trying. Right. So no matter if I was, you know, counting my macros, really sticking to a very low calorie diet, working out six times a week, you know, really torturing myself to fit into this, you know, tiny window of what I thought was acceptable to then finding kind of my own food freedom and recognizing that body acceptance for me was a, a more in line with the work I wanted to do than the work of doing all that counting and dieting and, and things like that. So that's kind of the journey we bring our, our clients through as well in the program. So pushing harder wasn't necessarily the answer or being more restricted, restrictive with yourself not, not at all. Right. It was the work I was doing for my physical body was not helping my, my mental health. And so now fast forward, you know, however many years really finding what that balance is to, to honor both kind of spheres of health. Yeah. And eating is so emotional. Yes. I mean, I remember talking to a guy who had such bad reflux that he couldn't sleep at night. And I was like, well, what if you tried, you know, maybe switching up some dairy, not eating gluten. And he's like, no, I'd rather have the reflux. <laughs> I'd rather have the reflux and terrible sleep. And I was like, okay, but you help women 
break free of this, this really vicious cycle of diet, binge, feeling guilty? How do you help women do that? The diet binge guilt cycle or the binge restrict cycle is really you know, kind of looks like maybe Monday through Thursday, let's say you're, you're good. And I'm using air quotes here. I know you can see me, but your, your listeners can't. So quote unquote, good Monday through Thursday, let's say you're, maybe you're restricting food groups or maybe restricting calories. Who, who knows? Maybe just eating kind of what you consider healthy. And then by the time the weekend rolls around, you're either hungry, maybe you're emotional. So you go kind of off the rails, right? And eat all of the things. And then Sunday rolls around and you start feeling that guilt and maybe that shame over kind of the way the pendulum has swung in the other direction. You wish for more willpower. You kind of shame yourself and say, well, I, I should have done better. I should have been stronger. And the cycle starts all over again, right? So that's what it looks like. Yeah. And so, and many, many, many of us have experienced that to some degree. I, like I said, was like living in that space, that crazy pendulum swing, the crazy roller coaster for almost 10 years of my life. So when we're working with our clients, we really want to understand what the underlying factors are that are creating that cycle. It's not a lack of willpower. It's not a lack of strength or determination. A lot of it is biology, physiology, and then also you know what's going on mentally as well. So when clients come to us, they feel like the binging, the emotional eating, or maybe just kind of the general overeating is the problem. And they've spent years and years and years dieting, trying to address that problem, right? So maybe if I go on a Whole30, I'll stop binging. Or maybe if I get on Weight Watchers, I'll stop overeating, things like that. And for our clients, at least, that is not working, right? So they come to us thinking, okay, I hope you guys can, can solve my problems. And what we start with is not necessarily addressing the binge eating in and of itself. We don't necessarily view that as a problem as much as a symptom, right, of some other problem. So on a, a physiological or biological level, the source of binging or the root problem when it comes to binging is some form of restriction, Again, whether it's caloric restriction, food group restriction, just certain food restriction. And when you remove that restriction, binging tends to be resolved like quite naturally, right? So in the example of your client who clearly had a lot of emotional attachments to gluten and dairy, even though it was potentially causing that physical discomfort, maybe for him, he had all this fear and you know limiting belief and who knows what around giving up those foods and, and maybe has experienced that when I restrict those foods, I actually tend to overeat them more. So for him, maybe the, the stair step could have been more of like a, a moderation or kind of figuring out what's, what's going on there. So that's like the, the behavioral cause of binging, but before any behavior comes a thought, right? So we dig even deeper into this to figure out, okay, what are the thoughts then that are leading to that restriction, right? So for a lot of our clients, it's, not being enough. It's feeling unlovable. It's this idea that if I were just thin, my life would be perfect. Or maybe it's some desire for control over our body when everything else feels out of control. That's something we see a lot with our clients. So if they feel like they don't have control over what's going on at work or in their relationships, then they'll try to control their body and control their food. They restrict in that way. And then again, at the end of every day, or maybe the end of every week, they find themselves going off the rails. Yeah. I think there's certain personalities that can use willpower. And I think of the personality of like the Navy SEAL, like super high performing, you tell them to do it, they do it. But I would say 
that's not most of us, right? Yeah. So you talk about why we should forget about willpower as kind of the driving force. Tell me about that. The reason I started like looking into willpower is because I heard about it so much from, from clients and followers. And, you know, I, I'm constantly asking my audience or asking our, our clients, you know, what are, what are you struggling with? What are your challenges? And they would always say consistency, right? Consistency was the number one thing I heard about, which then leads to this conversation on willpower. Well, if I just had more willpower, I could be more consistent. And I knew from like my, or I shouldn't say I knew, I had this gut feeling just from my own personal experience that willpower wasn't it. Because like I said, I had the willpower when I was in kind of the strongest hold when it came to dieting, I would have the willpower to, you know, stay within my macros or stay within my calorie goals for the first half of the week, let's say, or even it could extend, you know, weeks beyond that. And then they would reach a, some form of a breaking point, um, usually on the weekends, usually when I was out with friends, whatever it was, where willpower just wasn't enough. Like it didn't matter. I was going to, you know, eat the whole pizza or whatever it was. And so again, from my personal experience, I thought maybe you know, maybe willpower is not all that it's cracked up to be, but I'm always happy to be enlightened. I'm happy to be wrong if it's in, in service of, of others and, and certainly our, our clients. So I started doing all this research into the research on willpower. And basically what I found is that willpower is kind of like the flaky friend, right? So we've all got this friend who, you know, maybe it's our best friend from college, something like that, who's super fun to have at, at parties. And she's always, you know, down to do whatever, have fun, but it's not necessarily the same friend that you would ask to pick you up from the airport or like trust with your deepest, darkest secrets. So willpower is like great when it's there, right? But again, you don't necessarily want to rely on it or base your entire approach to health on this necessity for willpower. So when I dug into the research, I kind of found that it was like all over the place, right? And I go into these research deep dives with the hope of like kind of being able to see what's out there, distill the information, come up with some like three or four part process, hand it over to my clients and make it easy. I was like really, really wanting that. And it was so not what I found out. So the research on willpower starting in like the 60s and 70s to what we know today is like, all over the place, right? So, you know, some studies show that willpower is a finite resource and there's this phenomenon called ego depletion, right? So if you're, and, and many people do experience this where they feel like their willpower is really strong during the day. And then by the time nighttime rolls around, or again, the end of the week rolls around, they have none. But then a meta-analysis tried to go through and kind of replicate those, those studies across 2000 subjects and found that there was no ego depletion to be found. So there's this like dissonance there. And then a 2010 study found that basically what matters is how you think about willpower, right? So it's almost this like self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you think of willpower as a depleting or finite resource, that will be your reality. Whereas if you think of your willpower as something that's really, really strong, it will be strong. So there's all of this confusion. And again, I couldn't get to this like, okay, here's, here's what you need to do to increase your willpower. And so what I found is that this study in 2011 in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology found that people who self-report as having really strong willpower also self-reported fewer instances of having to use it, right? So basically, if I have strong willpower... I'm not using it as much, which is kind of indicating that, you know, people with self-reported strong willpower are creating these 
built environments that make it so that they don't have to use their willpower as much, mm. which I think is like the coolest thing ever. And again, indicative of the fact that maybe it's not about the willpower so much. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you think it's something that's innate? For example, the really famous one is like the marshmallow study in the kids, yes. right? Which I've like secretly tried on my almost four-year-old <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he's in the group that just shoves the marshmallow in his mouth immediately. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And, and just another kind of piece of like confounding evidence and, and very confusing for me when reading through all this research. So, you know, we've got, you know, people saying it's this finite resource, other people saying it's all in your head. And then if we follow people at the time, they were children in that, that study done in the sixties and seventies, those subjects have actually been followed into their adulthood. And we see more of this, like, okay, you've either, you've got it or you don't type thing. So again, with all of this conflicting evidence and conflicting research, I'm kind of like, let's forget about willpower until, <laughs> until someone can like really nail it down. Let's forget about willpower and let's make it easy for ourselves to engage in healthy behaviors consistently. So how do people make it easy? Yeah. Like everyone's on the seat. What is it? What's the magic secret sauce? <laughs> magic secret. So I think there's there's a few things. And for me and, and for the work that we do with our clients, it boils down to removing resistance and also having a really, really strong why. So when it comes to removing resistance, especially in regards to our health behaviors, I encourage our clients to basically make it as easy for themselves to make a kind of um, stereotypically healthy choice, I suppose, as it is to make a less healthy choice, right? So when it comes to nutrition, you can really level the playing field for yourself by making it as easy for you to grab fresh fruits and veggies as it is for you to grab a bag of chips, right? So what this does, and when it's done in the context of having you know restriction removed, right, you get to actually listen to your body in that situation. So let's say you find yourself um, feeling hungry because you're super in tune with your, with your hunger cues if you're working in nutritional freedom. So you go downstairs to your kitchen and you think, okay, I feel hungry. What sounds good? And you open your fridge and you open your pantry and you've got it all in front of you, right? So on certain days and on and arguably most days, you're going to say, huh, celery and hummus sounds really, really great. I'm going to choose that. In the case of resistance, you've got you know maybe the stock of celery and you don't have hummus in your, your fridge. All you've got is this bag of chips. So almost you become, again, that victim of circumstance and you have to default to the bag of chips because and, and all of that resistance is, is there, right? Or with maybe exercise, on the other hand, I see this a lot where we have, and when I say resistance, I mean more of the mental resistance, not like resistance <laughs> training, um, which can be kind of confusing when we're talking about exercise. But so many of us, and, and I was so in this boat for a long time, force ourselves to do specific types of workouts, even though we hate them, <laughs> right? So like for me, that was running. I hated running. And I thought this was back in college, again, at the height of kind of my dieting. I thought, well, if I hate running so much, I should train for a marathon, which makes no sense, like makes absolutely no sense. And I, as I got started in, in the training process, I didn't start hating it less. I continued to hate it. I had all this resistance against it. Fast forward a few years and I've given myself permission to stop doing things I don't like to do and do things with my body that I do like to do and find this strong why for exercising beyond the way it can potentially manipulate my body. 
And I get to do things I like to do, like strength training, like yoga, things like that. So removing that resistance is incredibly powerful. And we find that you become more consistent in your health behaviors when they become easier, at least, and enjoyable for you overall. Do you find that your clients, when they rely on what is easier and kind of like doing what feels good that they, and removing that resistance that they make better choices, healthier quote unquote choices? Totally. What I find is that they build up more consistency, which I think can lead to like increased progress and increased kind of pushing and and hard work. I I, I don't want to confuse this removal of resistance with being easy or too soft on yourself. Like I just went this morning and did a really hardcore workout that I, I loved, right? I was pushing myself though. So it's not about removing hard work and it's not about removing determination. It's really about, again, giving yourself permission to stop doing stuff you don't like to do. And if you're in this place where most of our clients come to us and they're in this like all on or all off place. So they're either like working out six times a week, dieting really hard, or they're like on the couch you know, overeating or binge eating. And I find that removing that resistance helps them kind of live in the middle a little bit more comfortably and more consistently. And all the research shows that with exercise, when it comes to kind of the long-term health benefits, you've got to be engaging in it regularly over time, right? So if you tell yourself you, you want to run, And so even though you've got all this like mental resistance against it and you maybe get up to five miles and then you take six months off because you just, you know, overexerted yourself or you just didn't love it, then that's certainly not making you healthier. You'd probably be be better off doing Zumba three times a week for the next 15 years, for example. Mm -hmm. I think in our culture, there's a lot of misconception, especially with so many different sources of media and a lot of it not being evidence-based necessarily leading to orthorexia, which is almost like eating too healthy. Yeah. For someone who's struggling with that, how can they kind of see the other side? Because when you're in it, it's like, it's so thick, you know? So thick, especially, especially today, like you were saying, like kind of clean eating and this, you know, wellness movement is like the 2019 version of diet culture, right? So maybe in like the eighties, it was all about low fat and we see all these like evolutions and we just see diet culture continuing to shape shift because it needs people's fears and concerns about their body and about their health to continue to like feed and kind of fuel that, that machine with, with dollars. Right. So diet culture has changed over time to, to stay relevant. Right. And I say this as a dietitian who is obviously someone who is very pro health and pro healthy foods, but there is this tipping point. Right. And that's where we see like you know, the disablone orthorexia to be an issue or a problem. So something that I encourage our clients to to think about and, and anyone, our listeners here too, if what you're doing for your physical health, especially with the foods that you're eating and the way that you're exercising, if it is costing you your mental health and your quality of life, it's probably too expensive, right? It might be time to kind of reevaluate and peel back a bit. And the reason that people don't do that 
is because they're scared. There's so many fears. People think that, well, without my food rules and without my restriction, without all of this, I'm just going to fall off the wagon, so to speak, again, doing air quotes. And I'm never going to work out again. I'm never going to eat a vegetable again. And what we find in the program and the clients that we work with is when we remove that restriction and when we help our clients kind of tune back into their own internal wisdom and listen to themselves, it's really, really amazing to see our clients kind of evolve from experiencing those like crazy pendulum swings from restricting to binging to really living in the middle and finding that their bodies are really naturally guiding them to that healthier choice more often than not. And it's not nearly as scary as they live it out as it was kind of prior to to giving it a shot. Right. How do you kind of tap into that intuitiveness? So I think, for example, like in terms of working out, like we never really taught how to weight lift. And I think a lot of women see picking up a weight as scary, but if they don't like running and let's say dance cardio and Pilates and bar, like all the other kind of low impact quote unquote exercises they think they should be doing, but they maybe don't even know that they like weightlifting. Like how do you get them to tap into something that's intuitive to make a shift? When it comes to to food or to exercise? Uh, Let's just say exercise in this case. Okay. I'm, I'm guessing that the same thing would apply to food as well what we really encourage our clients to to do again where our clients are coming from it's like they're they're in this all or nothing space right so we're kind of trying to get them to stop thinking in these black and white terms and start living in the gray because most of our lives exist in the gray right like most of us are not getting paid to maintain our bodies most of us are not making careers out of our bodies this is obviously not necessarily applicable to the navy seal or to the like career bodybuilder things like that right we're we're working with like everyday people. And life happens in in the gray, right? So maybe we don't have time to work out six times a week because we have kids and vacations and birthday parties and busy, thriving careers, things like that. So what we encourage our clients to do just to get started, I I think about three things. So one, what are the short-term like instant gratification benefits that you can cash in on with exercise? Whether it's better sleep, improved mood, more energy. Like what can you literally cash in on from exercise within like 12 hours of exercising? So that's number one. Number two, what are the long-term benefits? And this is where it gets a little bit deeper, right? So in terms of your long-term health, why are you going to exercise long-term and consistently? So for me, we've got Alzheimer's in, in my family and I do not want to get Alzheimer's. So that is a really, really big motivating factor for me to continue this like lifelong pursuit of physical activity. So that's number two. And then number three is just finding an activity you enjoy, right? So we kind of walk our clients through a number of parameters, right? Are you, what kind of music do you like when you're exercising? How do you like to move your body? Are you, do you like group fitness or can you work out on your own? Um, Do you want to work out indoors or outdoors? Do you need variety or do you just want to like kind of walk in and get it done? And I'm a big fan of strength training and there are so many amazing, amazing health benefits that come from that. So 
just getting started slowly. I think, I think more and more women are feeling more curious about the idea of even getting into the weight room. And I think we owe a lot of that to social media. So it's not, you know, certainly not all bad. So giving women a really, really great place to start. We've got a a 12 week strength training program that we have for our freedom clients. So our, our graduate clients from the foundations program who are then working with us on a membership basis. And it's a really awesome app where, you know, we have a three, four week cycles of a workout and, you know, we've got form there. They can watch videos so they can do their correct form. And even if they still feel fearful, then I say, well, if you're a member of a gym, you've probably got like a free personal training session that you can do, like start there, show them the workout. Like you can bring your own workout in, have them help you with form and the weight at which to start right? And that's it. If that is all you get from that one session, you're like leaps and bounds ahead of where you were even a week ago. Yeah. Same rules apply to nutrition or what they're eating. Oh, food is so fun because you're right that it is so emotional, right? And people think that they need more information or they need a meal plan. And if I had all this stuff, then I could be healthy and I would have a six pack and I would be happy, you know, game over. Right. And that's, that's not the case. Like if all we needed was a meal plan, we'd all be doing fine. Like I can literally go on Pinterest and find a free meal plan. I think that if you find yourself saying, I know how to eat healthy, I'm just not doing it. It is not a knowledge deficit. It is a behavioral. And when we're having issues with behavior, it's often issues with our our mind and the way we're thinking, right? So what we do with our clients is we spend two weeks digging in in the program, digging into their history with diet. So we can really understand maybe what has worked for them in the past. Why is it not still working for them? And also what isn't working for them, right? And then it's about kind of taking all of those food rules and and ideas about nutrition out of the context of any diet and kind of reformulating their approach to food based on what they already know to be true. Our clients have been dieting, most of them on average, five to 10 plus years. They've done Whole30, they've done Weight Watchers, they've counted calories, they've done juice cleanses, they've done it all. And I think in many ways, like that can, that history and that experience can be really useful because you can you've tuned into your body and you've like listened to your body during that time. Granted, your body may have been telling you in that time that, Hey, this is not working. And instead you tried to push through. So how can we kind of take all of those ideas and behaviors out of the context of a diet and understand what actually works for you and listen to yourself more than anyone outside? That makes sense. Yeah. So in the moment, like, let's say I know that a gluten full cookie makes me feel terrible. Yeah. Headachey and joint pains and just like want to go take a nap, but I want that cookie and I'm going to get the cookie and put it in my mouth. What would you recommend that woman, which in this case would be me (laughs) (laughs) in that moment to potentially make a better choice or eat the cookie and get a headache and know once again, that it doesn't make me feel good. (laughs) Yeah. So I think this is like a really, really big misconception about this idea of intuitive eating. It's that you eat all things all the time, no matter what, whatever your body craves, you go out and get it in an instant. Right. And that's not really, I should say for a lot of people, we call that kind of the honeymoon phase. Like that might be what it looks like for the first, however long, maybe, maybe a month, maybe longer, maybe less. It's so, so, so independent. But what we really encourage our clients to remember is that you don't have to eat anything that makes you feel like crap. 
right? Like even if you are pursuing this like non-restrictive approach to eating, you don't have to eat anything that makes you feel like crap, but you get to be the agent and you get to practice your autonomy in making that decision, right? So if you, for example, know that gluten doesn't make you feel good, I'm not going to tell you to eat it, right? Even though this is kind of my approach to, to health and nutrition, I want you to be able to make a choice about what you eat moment to moment based on, again, your own internal wisdom. And it sounds like your internal wisdom is really strong. You know the way your body, you're going to react physically and mentally to certain foods. And I implore you to trust that maybe more so than the paleo diet telling you you shouldn't eat gluten. So let's say in the moment, my intuition is like, um, don't eat that. You know, it gives you headaches, but the craving is strong for whatever reason. Yeah. It's like hormonal, emotional, behavioral. Is there like a tool that you give to your clients and to the women who like to kind of like make that shift? Sure. Yeah. So it's so elementary. It's so basic, but waiting, (laughs) waiting can be helpful, right? So a lot of times we experience a craving and it's not necessarily about the food, if that makes sense, right? A lot of times maybe we're hungry, right? So in that instance, when you're hungry and you see a chocolate chip cookie, that's going to make you give you a headache and, and make you not, not feel good. You might just be hungry, right? So in which case any food would do. So maybe in that situation, you go out and find something that isn't going to, to make you feel sick or headachey, whatever it is. This is where it becomes not as much It's always like mindset based, but then also like tactical, right? So I hope in that situation, you've got a snack with you, right? That, that, you know, you can eat, that's going to make you feel good. Right. So that's kind of one reason to have a craving. Another reason we have a craving might be because we're feeling some sort of like emotion, right? So we're stressed, we're bored, we're sad, we're happy. We eat for like literally any emotion we, we <laughs> find food is, is a great pa- partner for it, or we think totally. food would be a great partner for it, even though it isn't always the best. So if that's the case, then again, wait, maybe you give it 15 to 20 minutes and you work on, okay, what is it that my body really needs right now? Is it this chocolate chip cookie or is there something that something else that I could do or have or give myself that would better suit me? Yeah. And then at the end of 15 minutes, if you still want the cookie, eat the freaking cookie, you know, it's going to give you a headache. Is a headache the worst thing in the world? No. Yeah. There's a, I think it's a nutritionist or dietitian. I'm forgetting her name in New York city, but she has people who pay a lot of money such that every time they have a craving or their, the client is to text her (laughs) so that she tells them, don't put that in your mouth. And she pulls in the big bucks because of that very reason. But maybe that's not the best approach. (laughs) I would probably argue that it's not, but I want to also say that, you know, our work doesn't exist to really like correct anyone who feels like whatever they're doing is working for them, right? Like we're really here and I'm really speaking to the people who feel like they are white knuckling it, right? And again, they're on that crazy pendulum swing. And I'm here to, you know, tell people that there is like another way, right? So if texting your dietitian in New York and receiving some sort of response, um, if that's not working for you, like there, there are other ways of, you know, being able to prioritize your health that aren't necessarily so, don't feel so hard. Yeah. Where can people find you? 
You can find me on Instagram. I'm all over Instagram at Claire underscore Siegel. It's S-I-E-G-E-L. And we're, we're creating a lot of fun content, or I should say I'm creating a lot of fun content over there. And I've got the team behind me at Nutritional Freedom. Yeah. And it's a very pretty, it's like a really beautiful, visually pretty Instagram. I wish mine looked more like it. (laughs) (laughs) Any other social media platforms? Yeah. So I'm at Claire's Claire underscore Siegel on Instagram. If you want to follow my company and the work that we do, it is at nutritional freedom. And if you want to learn more about our programs and and our work and meet the team, you can go to nutritionalfreedom.co and you can Is there anything you would want to leave women of the world listening to muscle medicine podcast? There's like one thing you wish they would know. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh, I have so many things I want to, I want to let women know. I want to let you know that your, your, your value and your worth is extends so far beyond your body shape, size, what you look like. And that health doesn't have to feel so hard. And in fact, sometimes doing less in that respect can create a lot more space for more and for bigger and better and really just living a life that is truly in alignment with your your values. Thank you. Thank you so much for sitting down. So fun. Yeah. Thank you. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you wanna share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, Or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.